everybody. Um, my name is Michael Storper, and I'm a professor in the uh, Department of Geography here at the London School of Economics. And it's my um, honor and pleasure to be able to introduce David Harvey to you. Um, David Harvey probably needs no introduction, uh, but I'm going to introduce him anyway. Um, and um, for me, it's a personal pleasure because uh, David Harvey has uh, been very influential in uh, my own um, academic career since I studied with one of his early, uh, let's say, early disciples or graduate students and knew David um, from early on in my own, in my own career. He has a very decisive um, influence. And there's a lot of things, I mean, uh, someone like David Harvey's had a long and distinguished career uh, from his PhD at Cambridge, um, through his first position at Bristol, on to Johns Hopkins University in uh, Baltimore um, in 1969, coming back to England in 1987 to go to Oxford, back to Johns Hopkins in the late 1980s, here at LSE as a Miliband Fellow in the late 90s, and at the City University of New York um, since 2001. And through that career, um, I think we can say that um, there is a kind of a, an upward arc of uh, notoriety, um, of, of many, many path-baking works in uh, geography, and actually way beyond geography. Um, we might say an impact across the social sciences and the humanities, which is very unusual for, um, in this world, right? It's a, it's a small class of people that gets to make a huge influence outside of their own field. Um, I wanted to say just a few things so that I don't take up too much time, um, other than, you know, sort of saying, you know, here is someone who has had um, the long list of um, awards, honorary doctorates, translation, translations into many, many languages, and so on. One thing I wanted to kind of signal, which I think is, um, which, which threads throughout uh, uh, David Harvey's work is the quality of the writing. That um, you have someone who is capable of taking on um, extremely complex issues and making path-breaking uh, kind of uh, conceptual advances and can write about it all beautifully. And this is through, I think, every one of his books is beautiful writing. Something, again, I think is maybe, unfortunately, a bit too limited in social science today. Um, I think back to David's uh, really sort of first big impact book, Explanation in Geography, which is in the late 1960s, and where he's already searching for what is the kind of core of the discipline, what's it able to explain, um, how do we explain uh, the phenomena that geographers are concerned with, and he's taking on the positivist tradition in geography, which is dominant at that time, and, and also a rising in importance with uh, new statistical techniques and the rise of allied fields such as regional science. And he's searching right then for what is the geographical object and what is a geographical method, something which, of course, everyone in geography continues doing and hand-wringing about um, today. Um, but from there, I think the big, uh, what, we, what most people think is the, is the kind of the big forward-moving event is the next step, where in um, 
1973, I think, um, he publishes Social Justice and the City after moving to America. And um, this is coming about in the context of the crisis of American cities and society in the late 1960s, where uh, David Harvey is in Baltimore, a city afflicted particularly strongly by the dynamics of racism, poverty, urban decline, economic dislocation, and so on. And on, on the one hand, and on the other hand, a country in which land speculation, land building, investment in other places is rising. And David Harvey projects into geography and other social sciences uh, a Marxist framework as a way to make sense of these events with its sharp distinction between the use value of land and cities uh, and the exchange value, that is their market value. And Harvey develops this analysis technically and he claims that it's not just like the other, like the economists are claiming that land markets have certain failures or imperfections, that's the language we usually find in economics, but that the kind of, let's call it radical or revolutionary claim is they're not set up to be efficient, that they're not set up to allocate the functions of things to places, they're principally set up to extract value from land, natural resources, and the built environment and under conditions of scarcity and to transfer it from one social class to another and that power has a big role to play in affecting this transfer. And it's a kind of a core dynamic of how cities run but also how the economy in general runs. And later on, this analysis will be developed in, um, I can't, I don't know exactly how many books, but many, many books of, of Marxist analysis, one of which um, puts forth a concept that is at the core of debates in geography and development studies today, and which David Harvey labels the spatial fix, in which he argues that there's a pivotal role of the built environment, such as housing, for example, as an investment device that is prone to make super profits for those who have it, especially when other parts of the economy are not fundamentally doing very well, and that it's this fix for capitalism that comes about through land and space and the built environment that is one of the key moments in the capitalist uh, dynamic of development, but also, of course, one of the key moments in the generation of crises in the capitalist system. That is, it's something that's prone to sow the seeds of its own destruction and to bring the economy down with it in what we would now call violent asset price declines, right? So here we are, of course, many decades later, living through one of the real big ones, but it's important to understand that in the seminal works in the 1970s and early 1980s, David Harvey is already on this question, uh, making a sustained analyses of what's, of what's going on and why it's central to the way the system works. I could say a few other things about the, the breadth of David Harvey's work. It's not just that he carries out what we might call rigorous techno technical analysis in the Marxist tradition or Marxist economics. He does Marxist political economics, Marxist politics and sociology throughout his career. 
he has books that are on the on class consciousness and class conflict, such as a whole set of books on the urban uh, conflicts in Paris in the 19th century, in the Paris uh, Commune. And he has more recent books on social movements in the world today, contestation over the environment, um, the contestation over uh, cosmopolitanism uh, in today's globalizing world, the analysis of neoliberalism in the context of today's globalizing uh, globalization processes um, and the critique of contemporary ideologies of neoliberalism as uh, central to the way that class power has been uh, reasserted and inequality increased in the context of contemporary globalization processes. So it's a broad sweep of work, we might say, outward from the core economics into political economics sociology, politics, um, uh, and even class ideology and, and, and issues of consciousness. And so this brings us to today where, see, where what I learned is that David actually has two new books coming out. We're going to hear, I think, mostly about the new book called The Enigma of Capital, but it's also to be noted that for a um, very long time David has taught classes on the analysis of Marx's uh, central work, right, capital, and that um, these um, lectures have been issued um, uh, in a new book called um, A Companion to Marx's Capital, which has also come out in 2010. So that's not doing um, justice to David Harvey, but um, I hope you'll agree that um, we are um, in the presence of a uh, very important uh, scholar and thinker and social critic, and join me in welcoming him warmly to LSE. Somebody uh, once told me that uh, when you begin a lecture, you should always start with local color. So I thought I'd start with this, that uh, it was in, I think, November 2008 when Her Majesty the Queen came to visit London School of Economics, and I guess at a luncheon she turned to the economists and said, how come you guys didn't see this whole crash coming? I mean, she didn't say it that way, you know, but <laughs> that was the essence of what she said. And she apparently summoned the governor of the Bank of England and asked the same question, and the result of that was the celebrated British Academy conflab of all the economists and policy makers who decided that they would work very hard at trying to explain to Her Majesty what they had been up to all this time. And the letter was absolutely astonishing. I mean, I happen to be a foreign member of the British Academy, and the president of it sent this circular of how proud they were that they had done this. And the letter kind of started out by saying, you know, look, a lot of really dedicated people were working extremely hard and very intelligently about all of the th things that were going on inside of the system, but somehow or other we missed systemic risk. And you say, what? You missed systemic risk? And um, they then went to talk about the politics of denial and all the rest of it. Now, to me, systemic risk uh, if I translate it into my language, is about the internal contradictions of capital accumulation. 
No wonder they missed it. And actually what's very interesting is when you look at the structure of explanations of the current crisis, uh, you, you'll find almost no analysis along those lines. And what I tried to do in the Enigma was to provide some sort of analysis along those lines, uh, not entirely bypassing all of the other frameworks that exist. And if you divide them into genres, you'll see there's a, a whole genre which is about human failing and human greed and, and all the rest of it, and human nature and, and uh, you know, the... Uh, the animal spirits of the entrepreneur and desire for mastery of the universe, all those kinds of things, you know. And then there's the institutional failures and people go into that. Uh, then there's the failure of economic theory, the idea that efficient markets don't automatically you know, clear the efficient market hypothesis and all the rest of it, and that we should have listened to the theories of Hyman Minsky rather than sort of taking this efficient market hypothesis. And, there are, and then there are cultural explanations which are actually beginning to well up a little bit and rather uncomfortable way. I encountered those when I was in uh, Germany and France when it first broke out, which they all thought it was due to the defects of Anglo-Saxon culture. <laughs> uh, and disavowed it had anything to do with them, you know, and they were being hit by all of this. But actually the same thing's going on. If you look at the way in which uh, the Greek situation is being portrayed, it's being portrayed as a defect of Greek, char Greek character. And uh, there's an article out in the International Herald Tribune today that kind of says, well, the problem is they're too orientalist. <laughs> you kind of go, now this stuff, so, so, but actually there is a cultural element in this whole, whole thing, which we can note. I mean, for example, the fact that in the United States we have around 68, 69% of the population are homeowners, and that in Switzerland it's only 22%. Now, you can track this down to a cultural preference. And to some degree, it has become one. So there's this notion that the American dream is going to be home ownership. Uh, on the other hand, when you look at economic policy, you see that uh, there's something called the mortgage tax interest, interest deduction, which offers a huge, huge subsidy to the upper classes to become homeowners and go into debt and mortgages. I mean, the, the bigger your mortgage debt, the more interest you're paying, the more tax break you get. So this is hardly a cultural preference which is based in some, I don't know, American Revolution or something like that. It's also something that's been promoted. And actually, if you go back and you track it back in the 1930s, uh, you find the language there, they say, debt-encumbered homeowners don't go on strike. So it's a nice kind of social control element uh, involved in the promotion of uh, this idea of homeownership. So there are all of those elements, and I'm not discounting those. But what I wanted to talk about, really, was the, the con internal contradictions, but also to do it in a way which acknowledges one of the things that Michael was talking about, which is the, 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 the peculiar geography of it all. And that does pose a whole set of problems, which I've been worried about for a very long time. Uh, back in 1971, there appeared a cartoon uh, in the newspaper. I cut it out and hung it on the wall, and it was with me for about five years, because it defines very well the problem, and it, I call it the Snoopy problem. Uh, Snoopy decides he's going to write a great novel. And so he begins, it was a dark and stormy night. Famous banal opening by somebody or other. And then he said, um, a shot rang out. And then he said, a door slammed, the maid screamed. And then he gets to Snoopy, he said, the, the plot is thickening. And he said, over the horizon came a pirate ship. 
then uh, and I've forgotten all of the frames but it just sort of goes on in this vein and it says and, and somewhere the king was living in luxury while the whole of his people starved and somewhere in Kansas a small boy was growing up and then the final frame says in part two I put all of this together <laughs> and actually it's very hard to put together this I mean how do you write part two of this current crisis how do you put together that a crisis that really began in Southern California and Arizona and Nevada and Florida and a couple of other places in the United States suddenly spread to New York and is whizzing around the world when and, and, and when it, and it was caught up in Britain of course and while the Germans were laughing about you know well, this is an Anglo-Saxon concoction and then all of a sudden their export market collapses and then suddenly East, you know, Far East uh, trade collapses and, and then the Chinese rush around and figure out what the hell are they going to do and so they start doing all kinds of things and, and then all of a sudden the, the, the banks are all propped up here, there and everywhere and then all of a sudden we have sovereign debt crises. And if you think Greece has any problems, the largest failed state in the world right now is California. And if it were not for federal transfers of social security payments and all those other kinds of things, California would be completely wrecked. In fact, California is about to play the same role in U.S. politics as the New York fiscal crisis played in 1973, which ushered in the neoliberal turn. What the hell is going to happen to California? And it's not only California. You look at all of the states in the United States. Most of them are bankrupt. And, and, and the Greece sovereign debt is arising because it is a sovereign country and, and it's supposed to manage its own fiscal policy. And so, you know, you've got these different situations and then you kind of say, how do we put all of that together? How did it happen that the financial system gets stabilized and gets displaced by a sovereign debt crisis, either of the states inside of the United States or of, of states like Greece? And of course, we go further, we get the pigs, as they're called, you know, Portugal, Ireland, Greece and Spain. And what about the sovereign debt of Britain? When is that one going to hit home? And what about the sovereign debt of the United States? Which is interesting in its structure. I mentioned the home ownership thing. When you add up all of the debt inside the United States, federal debt, state debt, municipal debt, corporate debt, and household debt, 40% of the total debt of the United States is wrapped up in the mortgage market. It's huge. It's huge. And so you can kind of see that, that, that these, these problems are there. So what I set out to do in the book is to try to give an accounting of the general lines that the crises take and how they work, why they are foundational, if you like, to the way capitalism works, why you cannot have a crisis-free capitalism, and then try to talk about the very specificities of this crisis against the background of the many other crises that have been unfolding. We are deluded when we kind of say there's something special going on in this particular crisis because look at the number of financial crises that have been since the mid-1970s. Again and again and again. And if you add fiscal crises of the state to the financial crises, you see huge ones. The reason you didn't have a financial crisis in New York City in the 1980s was because the IMF went off and sucked it to the Mexicans and said you've got to pay back and you pay back by reducing the living standards of the whole people of Mexico and it wasn't only Mexico, it was something like 40 developing countries who had to pay back. So you didn't have a financial crisis, you had a fiscal crisis in Mexico and it was solved by attacking 
the standards of living of the people. One of the, stand, one of the things I lay out in the neoliberalism book is how neoliberalism departed its own mantras about things and basically said if there's a choice between letting the financial institutions go bankrupt or socking it to the people, you sock it to the people. And so we've been having this going on for some considerable time. In fact, Lula's first response to the crisis was to say, ha ha, it's time you guys up there experience what we've experienced about four or five times down here over the last 30 years. You're getting disciplined. You should have been disciplined by the IMF a long time ago. The problem was you were the IMF. <laughs> and since you didn't discipline yourselves, you're now getting disciplined by your indiscipline. So it's all your fault. So, you know, so, so, so Lula's kind of, was, people in Latin America were laughing like crazy at the, United, at the side of the United States until their economies collapsed as well. And then they said, oh my God, you know, we have to do something as well. So, so here's, here's, here's the thing we have to start to look at, which is where do crises come from? How has the rhythm of crises proceeded since the 1970s to the current day, present day? What's the dynamic of it? And one of the things you immediately notice is that many of these crises had an urban basis. It's not strange that it's the mortgage market. How did, how did the Japanese boom come to an end? Well, it was a crash of the stock market plus a, cr a crash of the land market. And actually, land prices in Japan are still going down. Still going down. Uh, you look, even inside the United States, we had a huge savings and loan crisis. There was a big housing bust in this country around the same time, 1987, 88, 89, that kind of period. And actually, the Swedish banks had to be nationalized in 1992 because of excessive property speculation. The downturn in East and Southeast Asia began with the crash in the Thai property market. So again and again and again, you find these financial crises are, are tied in some way to financial uh, jiggery-pokery that's going on in the land market and the housing market. Now, this is an astonishing thing when you, say, when, you, when you actually read, for example, the last World Bank Development Report, which I think is one of the most scandalous documents I've seen in years, uh, which actually says things like, well, uh, urban development, you know, the best thing you can do is let the market rage, and it will bring you things. And, and actually, it, when, as you mature, you can actually develop a, a secondary mortgage market, which is going to help you uh, sort of broaden the risk and all this. I mean, it was like, and this published earlier this, was it earlier this year, or was it? 2009. 2009, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the middle of a crisis, and not once in that report did they mention the fiscal uncertainties and the fiscal ups and downs that have gone on with urban property development. So I want to put that into the hopper and say there's something going on there that needs to be connected. So there's nothing unusual about this being centered in the property world. In fact, if you go back historically, you'll find in the 19th century, it was, it was very often in the property world and railroad development booms and all those kinds of things. So what I want to do then is to, what I wanted to do is to put that all together in a way that somehow or other could make some simple sense. And there were two things I did. One was I said, well, all right, maybe I should look, go over what I'd done in the neoliberalism book and say, how did the configuration of the last crisis and the solutions that emerged from the last crisis actually dictate the terms of this crisis. Now, it's a little bit of a complicated argument, but the simple version is 
the end of the 1960s and early 1970s, labor was too strong relative to capital. And labor was able to be strong because you had national economies with, with states in charge of their own fiscal policies, which could be affected by democratic institutions like labor parties and social democratic parties and all the rest of it, so that actually labor could actually change the social wage by forcing many aspects of a welfare state into, into being, at the same time as it had considerable power in relationship to capital because labor was well organized, the trade unions were there, it was organized on the shop floor, but capital could respond partially because of the structure by monopolistic pricing practices. The classic example here would be Detroit. Detroit had three auto companies and they did price leading and the, the, the workers were in struggle with them and over productivity agreements and everything else and in the end the companies would concede and then just raise prices. Result was, you know, sort of wage pressures and inflation was going on and, and things of that sort began to, began to happen. And during that period, of course, a theory emerged of monopoly capitalism, Baran and Sweezy. The official theory of the, of, the, of the French Communist Party during this period was a theory of state monopoly capitalism. And it made sense because the monopolies were constructed internal to the nation state which was a, a viable economic entity. Now, labor got too strong. So you had to break labor. How did you break labor? Well, you broke it in all kinds of ways. The initial way was to try to break it by immigration. And it's astonishing when you think now that back in the 1960s, the Germans were importing the Turks and the French were importing the Maghrebians, the Swedes were bringing in the Yugoslavs and the Portuguese, the British were drawing on the empire. The, the, actually, the United States actually revised its uh, immigration law in 1965 to give it access to the whole global potential labor market. But of course, immigration created a lot of difficulties. Enoch Powell, rivers of blood, workers, you know, races, you know, I mean, it got very messy. So you went to other things. You went to things like offshoring. But if you're going to offshore, it means you've got to have fluid, fluid ways in which capital can pass across boundaries. In other words, you, you have to start opening up, opening up new financial architectures in such a way that you can get capital flow. So if you're producing a, a car engine in Brazil and other car parts in Mexico, you can bring it across the border and you can price and all this kind of stuff. So the offshoring begins big time. And it's the threat of offshoring also that starts to discipline labor. And, if, if, and then there's technological change. The monopoly capital started to be forced into highly competitive modes of, of activity. And, and technological change picked up. Workers were less able to resist technological change or cut productivity agreements. And so suddenly the world begins to change in big ways. So that by the middle of the 1980s, essentially the labor problem is solved from the, from the capital standpoint. It has access to massive labor reserves all around the world. It can do what it wants. Um, and okay, there's some resistance here and some resistance there. But interestingly, I have not heard anybody in this crisis say the problem is greedy unions, right? Nobody's seriously put that forward at all. Back in the 1970s, boy, the financial press was full of greedy unions. You have to deal with the greedy unions if you don't, blah, 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 blah. So it's not a labor problem anymore. What is it? Well, since 1970s, we've had this it, uh, fierce attack upon labor, which has created wage repression. And actually, real wages have not really risen. 
anywhere. When you start to look at it in terms of national aggregates, what you see is that the wage share of national income has been steadily dis declining in all OECD countries, and even more significantly has been declining even in China. Now, if wage income is declining, you've then got a real problem as to how on earth are you going to sell your product? Where's your market going to be? And the answer was, give them credit cards. And so you get the organization of a debt economy. So households in the United States tripled their indebtedness over the last 30 years. And that indebtedness is taking place in a situation where the wage level is, is if anything, declining. Sometimes, you know, periods when it went up and then periods when it went down. So you have this wage repression and you have a debt economy emerging and you have a highly competitive situation. Detroit suddenly, which was in a monopoly situation, oligopoly situation, you want to be technical about it, in the 1950s and 1960s, suddenly finds itself having to compete with all the Japanese and the German auto companies and it becomes a highly competitive situation. The, the, the level of competition picks up between capital and as capital gets more competitive, so prices go down and profit margins go down. So you end up with a very peculiar situation in the 1980s, a low wage economy and a low profit margin economy. At the same time as there's a low wage economy, you're redistributing income like crazy to the upper classes, because that's what neoliberalism was always about. And that is legitimized by saying, you know, the, the, it's important we give them the money because they invest. And when they invest, they create jobs and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it sounded like my mother. My mother used to say about capital, she'd say, how come you want to get rid of the capitalists? They give us jobs. And I'd say, well, I want to get rid of them because there are other ways of getting jobs. No, if you get rid of the capitalists, we'll all, we'll all, we'll all you know, I mean, well, my mother, you know. <laughs> you've, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you've had some of those arguments. I, you know, it's, it's, just, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible. Anyway, so, so the, the theory was, but why would capital invest in low profit production? So they started to invest in other things. They started to invest in asset markets. They started to create new markets where they could make money out of money. And asset markets are different from ordinary markets because asset markets don't clear in any ordinary sense. I mean, the, the market for automobiles clears at some point or other, maybe. But an asset market is such that if I put money in the stock market, the stock market goes up and somebody says, hey, that looks a good bet, I'll put my money in the stock market. And then somebody says, yeah, I'll put my money in. And all of a sudden, all money's pouring into the stock market and stocks are going up and up and up. And, you know, people in the 1990s were saying, you know, oh, the Dow's going to be at 35,000 very soon. And, and, and it's unlimited. But the same thing happens with property markets. The same thing happens with commodity futures. The same thing happens with all of these and all these, and it's fascinating to look at the number of new markets that have been created since 1970s. I'm not only talking about the wave of privatization that turned, you know, all of housing into a market, healthcare into a market, education into a market, all of those sorts of things. I'm not only talking about that. What we're talking about <coughs> is the development of new markets. For instance, the latest one, the really, really hot about, is of course carbon trading. Already carbon trading in Europe is actually generating a lot of money for various people. 
But soon you could also create markets in derivatives, and you could create markets in insurance on derivatives, and then derivatives on insurance on derivatives on derivatives, and so you had a good time making loads and loads of money out of it. And what's more, that making money out of it has not stopped. About three weeks ago, there came out the news that the leading hedge fund owners in the United States, five of them, uh, last year, in the midst of this crisis, got $3 billion personal remuneration apiece. Now, I thought it was obscene and, and absolutely ridiculous when leading hedge fund owners in 2004 got uh, something like 150 million people apiece. And you kind of go, you know, this, 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 I mean, the money that's being made off this crisis by the upper classes is absolutely obscene. So, but it's being made mainly through the organization of these new markets. And that is what, where capital was going. Now, if capital is going into that, it's because it cannot find good markets to make things which people need and really want and need. You have to go and make this other market. Now, that raises then kind of question as to why that has been happening. And here I want to suggest something, which is the general path of capital accumulation that Marx laid out I'm going to be very simplistic. You start with some money, you go into a market and you buy labor power and you buy a means of production, you select a technological organizational mix, you put the labor to work in a labor process, you make a commodity, then you take it into the market and you sell it for money, the original money plus more money, the profit. So it's an expanding system. Then, because of certain requirements, a part of the money that was made gets recapitalized into new money, into new capital. And so the system expands. And it expands at a compound rate. Historically, if you read Angus Madison or something like that, you'd see that the total volume of goods and services traded through the capitalist market, and obviously the data is difficult to believe too much when you're back in sort of 1820 or something like that, but since 1750 or 1820 or whatever you start, the compound rate of growth in the global economy has been around 2.25% per year. Now, there have been some decades where it hasn't grown at all and some where it's grown much faster. When you turn to the financial press and everything else, everybody sort of talks about an aim and we've got a minimum compound rate is 3%. Below that, things are a little rough, you know, it's getting sluggish and so on. Of course, zero is defined as a crisis. So there's an incredible, incredible concern about the growth rate. When are we going to get back on that 3% growth? Obama says 2011 we're going to be back on at least 3% growth. Gordon Brown said the same thing. Everybody is looking for that 3% growth. Now, what does 3% growth really mean? 3% growth means that you can, you can take 3% of the total product and in, reinvest it in extra economic activity, further economic activity. You can expand the system. Now, in 1970, that 3% growth meant you had to find new investment opportunities for something like $0.4 trillion. If you want to do it now, and I'm using constant dollars here, you have to think about $1.5 trillion of new investment opportunities. By 2030, you're going to be talking about $3 trillion of new investment opportunities. One of the things I want to suggest to you is that the story that's gone on since 1970 onwards 
has suggested it's harder and harder and harder to find profitable places to put the surplus, to put the 3% and to find the 3% compound growth. Put in physical terms, you know, if you, if you were in 1750 and you're looking at what's going on in Manchester and Birmingham and a few other hotspots and said 3% compound growth on all of this, you kind of go, yeah, kind of the world's open, you know. Now you're talking about 3% compound growth on almost everything that's going on in China and East Asia, a lot of what's going on in South Asia, a lot of what's going on in what was the communist, part, communist bloc, a lot of, and of course Europe and North America, and much of Latin America and certain parts of Africa. I mean, you start to look at it and kind of say, 3% compound growth on all of that? What is that going to mean physically? What is it going to mean politically? What is it going to mean socially? And I'd like to suggest that actually we're at an inflection point in capitalist history where the question of compound great growth forever has to be seriously questioned, which suggests that there has to be some way to start to talk about who controls the surplus product and how is the surplus product going to be used? How is it going to be produced? In other words, the, the need to control growth becomes absolutely significant and absolutely essential for environmental reasons, social reasons, political reasons, you name it. Now, if we do not control growth, if we do, don't have some way of social control over surplus production and surplus utilization, if there is not some agreed upon me mechanism for that social control to be exercised, then what we're going to find is a, a continuation of the system as it is and you start to build some scenarios. I mentioned that we actually started in the 1970s with a labor problem which was solved in a certain way to produce in effect an effective demand problem backed by a financial asset problem. What this brings us back to are the different limits and barriers that exist within the accumulation process. Now, my view of crisis theory under, under Marx is not that it has one single way of man being manifest. In fact, crises are manifest in radically different ways depending upon where the main blockage lies to the accumulation process. And my argument would be that capitalism never solves its crisis tendencies. It simply moves them around. It moves them around geographically and it moves them around from one kind of center of difficulty to another. So where are the centers of difficulty? I mentioned that business of beginning with money. One of the first things you need to do is to ensure that capital is in the right place in the right quantities at the right time. How is that done? It can only be done by the construction of a financial system that assembles all of those bits of surplus money around and assembles it in such a way that you can go build a railroad here, a port facility there, an airline here, a shopping mall somewhere else. And that takes a very sophisticated financial system. So financial innovation has gone on in the history of capitalism with almost each wave. I first hit this when I was working on Second Empire Paris. I mean, there was a big crisis of 1848. It was clear that there was a revolutionary kind of thing and Napoleon III comes to power and says, my God, how are we going to do this? We've got to put capital and labor back to work. How are we going to do it? Well, 
bring in house money and we rebuilt, rebuilt Paris. That was one of the answers. This is the urban solution, if you like, uh, to the crisis. And very soon, by doing that, they actually created relatively full employment in Paris and they got out of the, uh, of the problem. Of course, they did a lot of repression of workers' movements at the same time, but, you know, it was just by the by, as it were. But in order to do that, they needed new financial institutions. And they had those San Simonians who kind of said, look, the association of capital is essential uh, to the development of large-scale projects. Therefore, we have to build institutions which associate capital. And the Pereira brothers set about building those institutions. The municipality set about building those institutions. So there was a financial revolution which lay at the, bo at, 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 at the root of the transformation of Paris and the building of the boulevards. Now, at each time, back in the 1930s, very interesting, back in the 1930s, the crisis of the 1930s, it was suddenly recognized around 1935-36 that about a third of the unemployment in the United States was due to unemployment in the construction industries. So what did they do? They suddenly went and reformed all the financial institutions. This is when the FHA was set up, uh, mortgage finance was rationalized, this was all built uh, up in the, the sort of legislation of 1937 where they revolutionized the, the, the financial structure with the idea, as I said, of converting as many people in America to debt-encumbered homeowners as they possibly could. Then comes World War II, which absorbs the surplus. I mean, that's another way you can get rid of it, of course. So that absorbs a lot of the surplus. But then 1945, they're faced with the fact that they're going to have all of these people coming back from, from, from fighting for freedom and justice. And what the hell's going to happen if they go back into the conditions of the 1930s? Well, they did the GI Bill, that's when the mortgage interest tax deduction came in, all this kind of stuff, and they actually set up a whole thing to suburbanize the United States. Build the highway systems. All of that was one great way of absorbing the surplus. A superb way, that's the way they came out of the crisis of that time, but by the time you get to the end of the 1960s, it's, it's going a little wonky. And the whole suburbanization of the United States then becomes one of the ways of absorbing it, but it is through, again, the revolution in financial institutions. So the revolution of financial institutions becomes fundamental to the history of capitalism. And it's no surprise whatsoever that the way we got out of the last crisis in the 1970s entailed a revolution in the architecture of financial institutions in the world, worldwide. It had to. You couldn't have globalized and, and offshored in the way you did and if you didn't have that. But of course, the whole currency system has broken down and so there's uncertainty on exchange rates. So what do they do? They set up a currency futures market in Chicago in 1972. So you start to get this whole wave of innovation which has gone on in the financial area, which is absolutely, I mean, it wasn't accidental. It was absolutely necessary for the kind of solution they were pursuing around the labor question and, 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 and the rest of it. So the financial stuff is very, very significant and how it's done. Now, there are two things that happen there. You can get inadequate financial institutions and you can get a crisis because of that. You get what's called financial repression. And then there's big pressure on revolutionizing the, the, the financial institutions. But as you revolutionize financial institutions, what happens is the financiers get a lot of independent power. And yes, they get greedy. Why not? I mean, if you're in that position and you're actually in a power to dictate, they start to make, take a big cut in way of interest. And the power structure, the power relation between finance and what it is financing shifts. If you look at 
corporate profits in the United States. Manufacturing profits are just zoom. Financial sector profits, zoom. It now accounts for about 40% of uh, the profit, profit, well, not about now because it's changing, but you know, it was count, accounting for around 40% of, of, of profits in the United States were earned by financial institutions as opposed to 15% sort of back in, you know, sort of 1980 or whatever it was. So <clears throat> this is one of the problems. The second big problem is the labor. Now, I've already talked about that, and I'm not going to go into it. But obviously, labor is potentially a barrier. And it was a barrier back in, in, in 1970s. But it's no longer one. So we can work past that. The third barrier lies in the area of means of production. And this is a complicated story about you know getting parts here from there in the right kind of order. And there are all kinds of ways in which that can go wrong. But behind it lies also the kind of question of, are there limits in nature? Are there limits in natural resources? And there's a lot of argument about that. Do we have at the back of this peak oil, blah, blah, blah? Is it, is it, is it, is it something to do uh, with, uh, with relation to nature? And that is a potential barrier. And many people will look at it right now and say, that is one of the potential barriers which we're encountering, though I'm myself not fully persuaded of that. Historically, capital has been extremely sophisticated in encountering seeming limits in nature and transcending them. Uh, and this is, I think, uh, one of the things we have to watch out for this time. And transcending them in ways which are a little surprising, not simply by technological change, but by all sorts of things. And right now, if you wanted to solve the environmental problem, there's no way you can do it by technology alone. For instance, I believe if you want to really go at that, you have to completely revolutionize the, 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 the way of urban life. Uh, because uh, the system that was set up in the United States through suburbanization is profligate in relationship to land and to energy consumption. And so you, if, if that is the nature of the problem, then you don't find new energy sources. You just say change the pattern of urbanization. So that is a potential problem. The technological organizational form is an interesting kind of question. Again, those change. If they change too fast, then you, before the old capital is fixed capital has been amortized, you get a crisis. If you don't change fast enough, then you can't raise productivity in the right kind of way. So there's all sorts of delicate issues around technology and organizational form. And in recent times, I would be, make very emphatic that it's organizational form as much as hardware of technology which matters. The reason Walmart has been so successful is because of its organizational form, not because of its technologies. And I think that this is the, I mean, obviously you use technologies in making the organizational form, but I think it's very important to make that distinction. So there's a, there's a potential blockage and, and, a, and a point where you can actually generate crises of various, various kinds. And then there is the, the question of, of discipline on the shop floor. Again, that was a problem in the 1970s, largely solved right now. I don't hear anybody saying there's a big problem about that because capital can simply go to wherever its most, most disciplined labor force. The last thing is, of course, the effective demand problem. As this is, a, you know, this is often referred to in classical kind of Marxist discussion of this as the underconsumption problem. And if you're an underconsumptionist, you're a Keynesian and you're not a proper Marxist. You know, I mean, you would say those kinds of things. But actually, if, the, if, if something emerges as an underconsumption problem, you have to call it what it is. And it is an underconsumption problem. Where are you going to find the market? Now, what Marx did was to assume the market could be actually acquired through uh, primitive accumulation. You just go steal gold from you know, around the world and that kind of stuff. 
And there was plenty of uh, gold reserves amongst the feudal classes, and you could actually use that as your big market. I mean, you'd sell all the goods and get them indebted and make them buy stuff. And so, you know, the initial bourgeoisie was very much sort of absorbing all of the e excess demand that existed in the feudal residuals, if you like, the, the gold reserves of the feudal classes. Well, most of those have disappeared right now, although, as, as we notice, uh, the Vatican has a lot, and it'd probably have to sell them off to pay for the sins of its priests. <laughs> so the, you kind of... So, but, but actually, that's not going to be a big market, no matter what, you know. The other ar argument that Rosa Luxemburg said, well, there's something outside of capital that exists where you can sell it to. You can, sell it, you, can sell you can get the Indians to sell opium to China, and the silver comes to India, and then the Indians pay for all the textile goods that are coming from Manchester with the silver that came from China via the opium trade. I mean, those kinds of things. That doesn't exist anymore. That the global capital has become such that, that uh, actually there's no outside. So the market has to be orchestrated inside. And how is the orchestrated inside? Well, the only way it can be orchestrated inside is very interesting. It's about saying the expansion tomorrow pays for the expansion of yesterday. Put in physical terms, the surplus product you, you generated yesterday is going to be taken up in the expansion of the system tomorrow. This gives you your 3% compound growth, if you like, why you have to do it. But there's a time lag there. And that time lag says the only way you can get from yesterday to tomorrow is actually by invoking credit and using money as a means of payment. So the financial institutions come in at the end of the story as well as at the beginning. They become absolutely fundamental to how this system works. And the simplest way to think of that is, you know, you would find systems in Southern California where a financier was lending to a developer uh, to develop tract housing and then was lending to the people who bought the tract housing. Okay, so actually capital, finance capital was working on both ends. It was working on both the supply and demand for housing. And of course that worked fine all of the time that the people who were buying the housing could pay off the debt over time. And when you started that system with people who had steady jobs and all that kind of stuff, then it really worked. But as the system accelerated, so you needed more and more people to buy. And that's when you started to get in this incredible pressure to go into the subprime stuff. I mean, the, the political pressure on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, those big institutions in the United States, to actually lower their lending standards was huge. And it came from Congress. And it came saying, look, we're running out of markets. We've got to do something here. How are we going to do it? Well, you know, come on, let's, let's slacken the... And, and all dressed up, of course, in the same way. We're giving access uh, to all, you know, poor people can have access to the American dream. Which, you know... So, so this is, this is the, the, the story, as it were. So the, the effective demand problem is, is, is a very serious one and a big one. And it's something that cannot easily be resolved except, as, I'm, as I suggested, by keeping the 3% compound rate growing at all, going at all cost. That's where the 3% compound growth forever is coming from. If you didn't have that growth tomorrow, then you wouldn't be able to sell today's product. And if you didn't have the finance to bridge it over, you wouldn't be able to sell your product. So when the credit markets freeze, of course everything comes to a stop. Because the other thing that's absolutely crucial about this system is it has to be kept moving. If it doesn't keep moving then and it stops, then all kinds of hell breaks loose. I mean, we've just seen an example of that. Okay. I remember very clearly, I just got to New York about three weeks before 9-11, and I remember when everything stopped. 
and people looked at each other and they didn't consume much and they kind of talked and you know it was, it was actually quite an interesting period of sociality until Giuliani came on the television and said for God's sake get out your credit cards and start shopping and we said what and then Bush appeared on a, on a, on a TV commercial for the airlines saying please start flying again and you suddenly realize that if you if if you you know if you stopped the, the the flow then you're really in difficulties and like we've seen with this one i mean you know the flow stopped only for for a few days but look at the damage it's done all over the world again it comes back to the geography of it what's happening to the Kenya farmers what's happening to other people you know caught up in this thing I asked the cab driver today I said how was the trade during the ash event he said absolutely appalling I made no money whatsoever I thought to myself I know why should I come into work it's no point so everything when it stops everything starts to collide and, and, and the ramifications are all over the place so the continuity of the system is is really fundamental so the growth of the system and the continuity of the system becomes critical. This then leads to the big problem, which I try to address at the end of the book, and I don't have too much time to talk about here, which is, okay, what do we do about this? And I wrote a piece for the World Urban Forum about organizing for the anti-capitalist transition, in which you have to say, look, anybody in their right minds, when you do this analysis and you concern the systemic qualities of capital, as opposed to the particular evils of greediness and, you know, institutional failure and blah 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 anybody looking at this would say we have to develop an alternative and it has to be social control over the surplus now you may think I'm crazy but somebody like that's what Hyman Minsky was long ago talking about saying look the only way you can avoid financial crises is by social control over the surplus and then the question is how are you going to do that and who is going to do it and there are a lot of kind of questions to be posed here and if we're going to be in an anti-capitalist movement then we have to think about the transitional process whereby one mode of production is replaced by another so what I did in the book is to talk about Marx's theory of, evol of social evolution and I extracted from capital a kind of general idea of how he really is portraying the transition from feudalism to capitalism and it was not a sudden revolution. It was what I would call a co-revolution. And the way Marx sets it up is to talk about a co-revolution between, in a, way, in a way, simply put, seven different moments of the social process. There is a technological and organizational moment. There is a relation to nature moment. There is a social relations moment. There is a production process, labor process moment. There is a daily life moment there is a mental conceptions of the world moment and there's an institutional moment all of those elements have to change and if you look at his chapter on machinery it's really very interesting for those of you who are familiar with my lectures online you'll, you'll see me saying is we've got to take one of these footnotes in Marx's capital very seriously and actually see how it works through the chapter on machinery all of those moments are involved the mental conception of the world had to change you had to understand industry as a science and a technology rather than as an art form and it's very interesting you know in the in the 17th century people called industry arts and you can there's still this metro stop in Paris called Arts et Métiers 
which is about an industrial area, and it's uh, it's it's, it's uh, you know it's not about science and technology. It's not called science and technology. No, you had to change your mental conceptions. You had to see nature in a different way, and the whole relation to nature got transformed in this in this process. The social relations obviously changed, both in terms of the employment process. Women and children are brought onto the line, down the mines, all those kinds of things. You get a completely different kind of configuration. Daily life is fundamentally transformed. And, and so all of these, all of these elements are, are actually transformed. Now this leads me into the idea of a co-revolutionary movement, which has to work on the, tra the, the, the transformation of all of those elements. In other words, revolution is not a you know, storming of the barricades and then it's all over. No, it's a slow movement across all of that, which, and actually it's very interesting when you look and you say, well actually capitalism has been permanently revolutionary. Think about how those different elements held together in, say, 1970. I tried to explain to students what it was like being a professor then. You know, you wanted to get out your, your course list and you'd had some machine that you kind of bong, bong, like this, and horrible pink-looking kind of stuff came out at the end. And people look at you and you say, you mean to say there was no photocopiers? No, no photocopiers. Oh, you know, I, I have to say to them, you know, I was working on the hop industry of Kent and I needed all the data from there and it was all in the university library. I spent three weeks every day copying out all of this data and I still have it at home, all copied out, neatly copied out, you know, on parish, on, on, on people use a photocopier now. I mean, in other words, and mental conceptions, of course, have changed radically. Financial institutions have changed radically. Institutional arrangements have changed. So that actually capitalism is a permanently revolutionary force. And my argument is the only way we can construct a revolutionary movement is to look at the contradictions within the co-revolutionary movement of capitalism and to seek ways to transform them into a different configuration and in a different direction. So it's not as if we're starting with a static situation and we have to revolutionize it. No, it's revolutionizing around us all the time. And you can see where some of the tensions lie. I mean, all the fight that's going on over the internet and how the internet shall be used is a very good example of this. But how you have to change, also, if you, want to, if you want to solve climate change, for example, and deal with climate change, which is the relation to nature part, you can't do it without new technologies. You can't do it without changing social relations and daily life. You can't do any, I mean, in other words, it takes a revolution in all of those elements to actually come up with an answer to that. You want to deal something with global poverty and you want to take it seriously as opposed to the World Bank telling you, well, just use capitalism and it'll all work for you, which they've been saying since 1945. And I, you know, I'm getting tired of it. I mean, I'm particularly tired of this rhetoric that says we're going to solve the problem of poverty without actually dealing with the problem of accumulation of wealth. I mean, you kind of say, this is ridiculous. We should be, instead of having an anti-poverty movement, we should be having an anti-wealth movement. <laughs> and of course, you get thrown out of the meeting when you say that. <laughs> But actually you can't. I mean, I defy you. I defy you to solve the global poverty problem without dealing with the accumulation of wealth problem. I mean, how can you possibly do that? It's ridiculous. So, there, so the idea then comes, well, okay, who's going who's to be involved in this? And I have this kind of utopian vision that all of the discontented and alienated, I crude myself in that, will have an alliance with the deprived and the dispossessed. I can't say I'm deprived or dispossessed. I don't think, well, some of you may be if you're adjunct teachers in a university. <laughs> you are? Okay, yeah, well. <laughs> you, know what, you know what I mean. I mean, you're, 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 you're alienated, discontented, deprived, and dispossessed. I just, you know, makes you a very good revolutionary subject. So that's great. So, so the point here is to say that actually we, ha we have to think about 
what the macro problem is and confront and deal with the macro problem as it is. And until we're prepared to do that and, and, and prepared to lay out the kind of analysis, and I'm not sure I have it all right, but we have to think of it in these terms. And what is so depressing about academia in general, I have to say, is that there are not people around who are really prepared to go for it. I mean, when all of those economists wrote that nice little thing to the Queen and kind of said, we miss systemic risk, and you'd say, hello, are you going to tell me about systemic risk then? Do I ever see any analysis of that? No, not at all. Somebody had a spreadsheet somewhere and said, oh, well, there was some risk in the mortgage market or something. something. Yeah. There is a real intellectual problem here. And while changing ideas doesn't change the world by itself, because all of the other moments have to change, you can't change the world without changing ideas. And when people ask me, are, you going to get out, are we going to get out of this crisis just the way it was before? And I say, well, if academics continue in the way they are, the answer is yes. They're still teaching the same ridiculous neoclassical economics class, classes, the same kind of, you know, stuff in rational choice in political, you know, I mean, all that kind of rubbish. It, they're still doing that. And, and, and all they're doing in the business schools is sort of adding a little, little course on business ethics, as if it's going to make it all difference. <laughs> Either, either, either that, or, or even more sinisterly, what they're doing is creating courses on how to make money out of other people's bankruptcies. So there's an intellectual problem. I, I'm, I'm not able to work across all those other mo moments, as it were. I'm able to work on mental conceptions of the world. So what I'm appealing to you is, for God's sake, be prepared to shake up your mental conceptions of the world and think about something different in relationship to how to understand the current situation and the likely outcomes that will follow from actually continuing on the status quo, which we are actually doing right now. When I said that the neoliberal trick which came up in the 1980s was to save the banks and suck it to the people, isn't that exactly what they're doing right now? And furthermore, you would think the bankers would have some shame and say, I'm not going to make three billion dollars in one, you know, I mean, or, and take bonuses of billions, you know, but they're doing it. And isn't it time we said enough is enough? And, and actually thought about the construction of a movement that's going to at least deal with that, and then go on to say social control of the surplus is what matters. And social control is not necessarily state control, because we've been down that path and seen all kinds of problems with that. So that is going to take an act of tremendous imagination and tremendous thinking through. And I'm just one person in all of this, and it seems to me that we need a collective thinking about all of these issues. And what I want to do is just put on the table what it is we should be discussing, instead of, you know, going back into one of those ridiculous courses when, when you, you know, well, I won't get into that. But I better, at this point, I think I better shut up, so thanks very much. have, I think, some time for questions, and I don't know, I'm, I'm happy to handle that, if, unless you want to Please. ask rude questions, no. Michael. <laughs> no, no, I don't, I don't want to ask any questions, okay. so uh, right. it's open. Yeah. Uh, you might need a microphone.
Thank you, Professor. It was great. Uh, uh, just a couple of quick questions. One, uh, if you can just talk a bit about uh, post-French Revolution situation and the whole idea of individualism and an analogous situation today where we are having the whole internet-fueled individualism and the me culture, how, how capital sort of fuels itself on that principle. And second, if you can talk a bit about Bill Gates. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not terribly interested in that one. But uh, what's what's interesting about Bill Gates uh, is his foundation. And actually, if you look at all of those foundations by Gates and Soros and so on, you see that actually what they're doing is they're defining a new R&D frontier, which is in biomedical engineering and genetic engineering and all those kinds of things. That is likely. I think they're trying to turn that into the next bubble, if you want to call it that. Uh, in other words, this is the, a new innovation wave which they're trying to, and of course they're doing it all about human good, you know, uh, contribution to humanity that can be made by, uh, by the, this uh, research. So that's a lot of what they're uh, attempting to do as, as the state withdraws somewhat from as, uh, defining the R&D effort, except of course still in the military realm. Uh, so we're getting the private foundation stepping in and defining the next research frontier. So that's a bit about what Gates is, is, is up to. On the individualism question, yeah, I mean, but there have been many periods when people's, you know, the individualism gets, uh, gets modified in certain ways, and I'm not, I'm not entirely against some sort of individualistic activities. I think it's fine. But the question is, how is it locked into... Uh, political work and in what ways does political work uh, actually uh, offset some of the negative sides. One of the most distressing things I think uh, that comes out of the neoliberal era which has been preaching this gospel of personal responsibility for everything is that the majority of people who've been foreclosed upon in the United States do not blame the system at all. They blame themselves that somehow or other they weren't personally responsible enough or something happened to them, uh, that uh, an accident happened to their kid and they got heavy medical expenses or something like that. So getting the idea that there's a systemic problem behind this and that it needs a systemic politics and a systemic solution is actually very hard given the way in which many people have responded. At this point, I've been very surprised, you know, millions of people have lost their homes and there's been no you know, huge social movement of the dispossessed around that. There are signs it's beginning, but it's only just just beginning. So, yeah, there's a big issue there, uh, which has to do with the fact that, you know, when Margaret Thatcher was at her height, she basically declared that her, her task was to change the soul of people. And to some degree, she succeeded. And I think there's a sense in which we're all neoliberal now without altogether knowing it. And then that's one of the ways in which self-critique and I think... Social critique becomes becomes crucial. First, I would like to thank you very much for your lecture. Um, my main question is a very simple question. Um, you use the word they a lot, and I'm just wondering who really is they, and what is they, and how are they able to do what you say they're able to do? Thank you. Well, you know, I don't, I don't have uh, too much difficulty with that question. Um, it was pretty clear to me uh, from all of the evidence I assembled from the 1970s 
that they was constituted by, or, you know, you can find organizational forms like uh, the Business Roundtable, uh, the U.S. Chambers of Commerce, uh, the Political Action Committees, uh, all of which uh, were actually linked together through a political process uh, with a political agenda. And if you go to the celebrated K Street in Washington, you'll say, see who they are. And, and uh, it's not, it, it, like I say, it's just not too hard. Now, you can take an individual and say, well, I'm not sure whether that individual is there with them or with us, you know, I mean, I don't know. And there are lots of, there are some people within the financial services industry who actually uh, sotto voce will agree with me. I mean, they would never say it publicly, but they, they, they do. So there are um, what uh, Ananya Roy calls double agents within the system, so, and that's very helpful because they can feed you information that you need. So, but I, I don't think they is a, is, a, uh, is a big issue. I mean, I know who dominates economic decisions in a city like Baltimore. Uh, it's pretty clear who dominates decisions on Wall Street. Um, and, uh, and one of the points I make in the, in the book is that the, since the 16th century onwards, something is formed which I call the state finance nexus, which is usually hidden from view. And it's that point at which the state and money and finance are so intimately related that you really can't tell difference. Now, I don't know if you noticed in the crisis, it was very interesting being in the United States. Who appeared on television in the midst of the crisis? Bernanke and Paulson. We didn't see the president anywhere. The Secretary of State had disappeared. Everybody else, they were coming out and making all the decisions. There's your state finance nexus. The U.S. Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve. And, and they're creating key decisions. For instance, they're subsidizing the banks. The banks can go to the Federal Reserve and, and, and borrow at zero, money, zero interest. Right? They can then lend out even at 5%. I mean, this is the state actually subsidizing the banks hugely. And that is what the state finance nexus is about. It's about supporting the finance and, and, and so on. So I don't have any difficulty looking for those institutional arrangements which are signals. Now, generally speaking, the Federal Reserve sits in the background and, you know, blah, blah, and has its open market, you know, and every now and again uh, they talk and the Treasury talks, uh, you know, so they'd like to remain rather out of sight, and as any ruling elite would want to do, don't want to draw attention to yourself, but boy, in that crisis they really draw, drew attention to themselves and what they were about. You will see that exactly the same thing when the, when the South Korea bailout occurred in 19... 1997-98. No, Who was there? Head of the IMF was in one room. The, the US, head of the US Treasury was in the other room. Same thing happened with the Mexico bailout. Those two did it. So I know who they are. And I'm you know, a little surprised you don't. I mean, I kind of... <laughs> You know, no, and, and, and there are all sorts of, there are, you know, there are all kinds of fuzzy areas, you know, and we can get into this fuzzy thing, well, are they in it, are they, well, you know, at that point you say, this is political allegiance, uh, you know, to, 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 to what? So, yeah, I know who they are. <laughs> Sorry, somebody up there wanted to.
help you. Yeah, I just want to say I thought that was a great um, presentation and I also am a big fan of your books, um, David. But I, I, I do have a little doubt which I wanted to share. Only a little is, one? Okay. Well, we'll see. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just that it seems to me you're saying that, the, that labour has ceased to be a problem for capital because of the victory of neoliberalism and because of the dismantling of the welfare state. And, and it seems to me that actually in the 40s and 50s there wasn't a high level of struggle by, by labour, um, even though the, the welfare state was already developed. Um, and actually what we've seen in the last few decades has been a victory by neoliberalism, partly because it's actually managed to defeat workers' movements, mm -hmm. such as the miners mm -hmm. in Britain and yeah. the air traffic controllers, which you've written about in your book in America. And on the back of that, it's managed to, to weaken the working class and destroy some of its confidence. But it doesn't seem to me that that picture is, is the case all across the world. And we're seeing at the moment in Greece massive general strikes, which are actually making it difficult for, the, for capital to make labour pay, pay for the crisis. They're going to do their, their best to, to make them pay, but, but there is a high level of resistance. And so I'm just wondering if, if, the, if you, ha you haven't painted too bleak a, a picture about the possibility of, of labour fighting back about capital. And, the, the, and I just wanted to ask a very quick question related to that. Is that you say, and I totally agree, that we have to reappropriate, we, we have to take back social control of the surplus, but surely workers are going to have to play a central role in that because yeah. it's through their exploitation that the surplus is generated in the first place. And therefore they can, by withdrawing their labour, actually regain control over that surplus. Yeah, well, have, have to play a central role. I agree with you uh, that they are able and organised to do so right now. I don't really think so. Although the, one of the big uh, question marks in, in all of this is, of course, uh, the labour situation in China. I mean, that's a big one. I mean, I, there's, there are all these reports of uh, significant unrest in China. Um, I don't think uh, the unrest, even though I admire some of the things that are going on in Greece, frankly, I don't think the unrest there is, is, is going to be able to revolutionize uh, the whole capitalist system, whereas I think serious unrest in China will be another story. And there are signs uh, of, of that existing there. And, but, you know, it's very difficult to get, um, you know, information about it, uh, which is reliable, e even, even, but even the official reports on incidents of unrest in China have skyrocketed over the last couple of years. And to some degree that accounts for the, in a sense, what seems to me a very panicky response to the crisis by the Chinese central government, which is to get everybody back to work building God knows what, where, you know, and whether it was going to work or not, who knows. But, uh, but, I mean, huge investments going on in highways and magnetic train, levitation trains and all those kinds of things. So, yeah, I, I didn't want to say that labor is irrelevant, but I'm saying from the standpoint of capital, it's got labor where it wants it right now. Now, it's not to say there aren't struggles and, 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 and you know, we, we have individual struggles and we can support, but actually uh, I think that uh, uh, the capacity to organize uh, massively from within the labor movement. And, and actually, right now, I think there's this whole kind of question of the structure of labor force, uh, its uh, spatial configuration. I've always had a problem with this notion that the workers are simply those who live in, and work in, or who work in factories. Um, I'm always interested in the workers who actually produce urbanization. 
and they're all over the place and are involved in the construction and, uh, and maintenance of the sewers and, and all that kind of stuff. They're, they're just as important. And actually, those workers were very significant in things like the Paris Commune and, and, and so on, so, and the municipal workers and so on. You know, so there's a lot of, a lot of questions there. Uh, so I didn't mean to say that uh, somehow or other their workers are irrelevant. But as somebody said to me from the New York uh, labor organization, a very radical guy, said basically we're not in a position to lead this struggle right now. We are in a position to support it, but we are not, a, we are not in a sufficiently well uh, organized ourselves and sufficiently powerful ourselves to be a vanguard that can actually do an, do lead, the, lead the struggle. And he, he basically said to me, if you're interested in a vanguard, you've got to find it somewhere else. And, and so that then led into some discussions about, you know, alliances between different movements like the dispossessed and, the, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the exploited and, and, and those kinds of things. Was there anybody up around here? Yeah, let's go there. To, um, did you hear the first part of my question? You had a question about student yeah, debt. Yeah, student debt and how that's another sort of new, new mechanism to kind of indenture people not onto the mortgage kind of indebtedness but the student indebtedness in yeah. terms of uh, people being able to sort of in any way rebel, if you like, yeah. bringing a whole generation of people into this idea that I can't speak up because I have to service this particular debt. And then the second thing that you mentioned was the whole adjunct community, and you were talking about a kind of intellectual vacuum, but the whole structure of adjunct employment means that you don't actually have the time within your kind of labor framework to create that kind of analysis that you're speaking to. So I think that that's also sort of structurally connected. Well, yes and no. I mean, one of the things I want to point out to people is that there is something called subversion. And wherever you are, no matter what, there is the capacity to subvert. And uh, you should think about it. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I have to say, you know, sometimes I, I, you know, students will say something to me like, well, you know, it's impossible, there are no jobs where I can do exactly what I want to do. And I kind of go, you know, you think when I took a job that I could do what I wanted to do? No, we subverted the whole damn system, and we were quite good at it. No, you're smart, you're sophisticated, you should be able to figure out how, how, to, how to implant some of this. And students say, yeah, okay. And I think it's so, it's not, uh, I agree with this a bit along the lines, you know, I, I wouldn't be too negative about that, saying, well, you know, there's no possibilities here, you know, and you kind of go, there are always possibilities. Um, first of all, to, uh, I do have to make the point with your several references to the, uh, to the Economist response to the Queen that this place is run by Howard Davis who set up the FSA, so there are jobs issues in that response. Huh. Um, um, I'm also a bit, a bit disappointed in your dismissal uh, of Labour uh, and like it's a spent force rather than uh, a state of flux and maybe the issues... Uh, not addressing the issues that could, in fact, um, affect the power of labour. Um, not that I'm advocating um, 
any sort of single sector, single union action as we've seen in the past. But if, um, if we accept that, like you say, that, that uh, transnational capital is the they, transnational capital using states, um, then what is the unit of resistance? Or, or are, you, are you just sort of suggesting like uh, everyone subverts and there was some sort of like a, a globalized blur of resistance? Or is it, do we need a unit of resistance? Do you understand what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like yeah, draw no, a line around it. What, what no, is I the understand, unit? Yeah. yeah. I didn't, look, I didn't dismiss labor. I simply said that from the standpoint of capital, capital has, has, has solved the labor problem as far as it is concerned. That doesn't mean that laborers are, are lying down dead as dodos or anything of that kind, not at all. And there are significant movements. I mean, even in the American labor movement, there are significant movements. And I'm not, and, you know, and we work with some of those in, in New York City, but they're movements often of different kind of workers. I mean, for example, there's a Domestic Workers United, which is a kind of union of a sort, which is attempting to deal with the situation of domestic workers in New York City, in, in, in New York, which is a large number of them. Most of them uh, are foreign immigrants, some of them illegal, who are working under the most appalling kind of conditions. So yeah, there's a lot of struggles of those kinds. We work, there's an organization of restaurant workers, there's a taxi drivers union. I mean, yeah, we work, we work with those, and, 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 and yeah. But the interesting thing is that when you kind of say, what's the unit of resistance, the answer is, I don't really know. I mean, these are the kinds of things we need to kind of work out. I can tell you what I've been doing. I've been working with something called the Right to the City Alliance, which is a bringing together of different organizations in New York City who want to think about an alternative urbanization and an alternative way in which the city should be run. And some of them are, are anti-gentrification movements, some are gay and lesbian rights movements, some are anti-criminalization movements, but they're coming together in an alliance. And they are in alliance with things like the loose alliance with the restaurant workers and also with the domestic workers. So, so when you kind of say, what's the unit? Well, in this case, the, the unit that's emerging is something called the Right to the City Alliance. And there's a Right to the City Alliance in Los Angeles, and there's one in, in uh, Miami, and there's one in, in Washington, D.C. So, they're, 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 and, and actually, when you go to Brazil or something like that, you find Right to the City stuff is all over the place. And don't forget, one of the most radical organizations in Brazil, for example, is the Landless Peasants Movement. So you've got these, these, these groups, which are beginning to work together. So when you kind of say to me, what's the unit? I don't have an answer to that. I think that actually, one of the things that is needed is, is, is working with as many of these organizations as possible and trying, trying to actually talk about, you know, what is, what, how, how much can we actually influence things? Uh, and it's not necessarily easy. I mean, when I'm working with Picture the Homeless or something like that in New York, it's, uh, it's, it's about homeless people and, and, and their, their conditions of life and, and the harassment they, they, they receive. So. My, I'm, you know, I haven't got an answer to that. I'm just working towards trying to do something along those lines. I'm sure that you're trying to do the same thing. So we can actually work out what the unit of analysis may be. I don't have a, a priori kind of, oh, well, you have to do it like this. No. I think the different organizational forms are beginning to come together. And if you actually look at, for example, the Anti-Climate Change Alliance, you'll find an alliance between grassroots groups, you'll find peasant groups involved, indigenous groups involved, you'll find high-flying scientists involved, you'll find administrators involved. In other words, 
it's a, it's a very, very broad alliance which is attempting to create a significant shift. And that has emerged out of the nature of the problem. And the thing I kind of find very interesting about that is it, it deals with the relation to nature, the technologies, and it deals with the mental conceptions and, 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 and the like. But it brings together these very different groups. I have no you know, easy solution to it. I wish I did. I mean, I just don't. And, and uh, like I say, and I, within that, uh, what workers are doing and how they're organizing in particular spaces and to the degree to which they can organize is very dependent on their situation. For example, the group I work with in Baltimore uh, wanted to organize the stadium workers. But you can't actually do that unless you have, uh, you know, under the National Labor Relations Board, so they didn't want to call themselves a union. So they called themselves a human rights organization. And this is what I mean by subversion. You know, if you kind of say, we've got to make a union, well, you've got to go through union law. But if they said we're a human rights organization, union law doesn't apply. So they organize the workers through a human rights organization. And furthermore, as a human rights organization, they could bring in members of the community as, as part of the adjunct uh, of, of what they were doing. And they won their battle by a very simple stratagem. They said, they said one day to the, the, the Maryland Stadium Authority, unless you give all of the workers who work in this place a living wage, we're going to stage a hunger strike outside, outside the stadium. And the hunger strike would not be workers necessarily. There was going to be a priest, there was going to be a lawyer, there was going to be, you know, in other words, they were as a human rights organization, and they won a living wage for all the workers. On May 1st, they're going to surround the whole of the Inner Harbor in Baltimore and declare it a human rights zone, within which living wages should be paid. In other words, there are different ways of organizing, and, and, and you have to adapt your way of organizing depending upon the situation. When you've got temporary workers, and we went through this in the living wage campaign in Baltimore, we've got temporary workers with no, insecure jobs and all the rest of it, no unions, and, and, and pretty impossible to organize a union, you have to go some other path. So the form of organization also has to be flexible. It also has to move. And those shifts are is very, very important to me in terms of redefining, if you like, the, the unit of analysis that you're talking about. So we've reached uh, the end of our time. Uh, before we do anything, I have two announcements to make. You're all invited to reception in the atrium. And those of you who would like uh, David to sign a copy of his book for you, You've been invited by the publisher to form an orderly British queue outside, <laughs> unless, of course, you want to be subversive and try some other strategy for it. So in any case, um, please join me in thanking David Harvey. And, uh,